chapter 5, verse 1. But now, slash yourself, daughter surrounded by soldiers. We will be besieged with a scepter they will strike Israel's ruler on the side of his face. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf. One whose origins are in distant past. So Yahweh will hand the people of Israel over to their enemies until the time when the woman in labor gives birth. Then the rest of the kings of the countrymen will return to be reunited with the people of Israel. Now, this is your famous prophecy of Jesus. Okay, right now, all it says is this is from you, Bethlehem. You're an insignificant pathetic little town that nobody cares about. Hey, so remember Jesse. Jesse was a shepherd. He was living in Bethlehem. Insignificant family. Insignificant tribe. And yet God chose him. His son David. So Saul, very prominent tribe. Very prominent family. Wealthy, noble. That kind of stuff. And God chose him and he messed up. So then God came to Jesse. Poor, not prominent, insignificant little Bethlehem. And he chose David. So right now what this is saying is from the line of David, what started off as small and insignificant, God will turn into a powerful king. One whose origins are distant past. Now, this doesn't mean that the descent of David is eternal past. The, the everyday normal Jew back then would think of this as the plans of God go all the way back into the past. They're old. You will rise up. They got that as this. This is how the Jew would have understood at that time. One day, a descendant of David will become the great king that we've all been looking forward to that will make us this nation that God was talking about in chapter 4. Because Yahweh says, your king will deliver you and I will be your king. So they're looking forward to this day that a descendant of David would be able to create what God was talking about in chapter 4. And chapter 5 says the descendant of David will do it. So when, when the Magi are looking for that king, looking at the stars, paganism, and they come to King Herod and ask, where's this king? The prophets know where to look, the word of God, and they put it together because Numbers said, out of you, Jacob, will rise a star, and it will carry the scepter, and it will crush the nation's and rule over the world. So the Magi see the star. So, but then Micah said, out of you, David, you will rise up and stomp on the nations and build this kingdom that chapter 4 was talking about. And so the prophets go there and say, well, where does the star come from? Well, it comes from Jacob. We know that. That's numbers. But we're all Jacob. But oh, here in Micah, it says it will come from Bethlehem. And that's where they pointed the Magi. So then the, the Gospel of Matthew is saying Jesus is the descendant of David. The thing is, what a lot of people don't realize, that this prophecy isn't screaming Jesus as the God-man. It's that this prophecy is pointing to a descendant of David. But as you keep reading, you're like, how could any human pull off what Micah is talking about in chapter 4? And how could any human pull off what Isaiah is talking about? And how could any human pull off what Ezekiel is talking about? Well, it's a descendant of David. Okay. 
So you look forward to that. And then what Matthew comes along and says, this isn't a descendant of David. This is way more than a descendant of David. Yes, he is. But he's going way and way beyond the prophecies. Now, when we get to Isaiah, I'll talk about prophecy a lot more. Okay, prophecy is way more complicated than what we often think. Everything in the Bible is way more complicated than we often think. That's why it's a difficult thing to study. So, but when we get to Isaiah, just hold, if you have any questions like, what are you talking about? Just hold on to that. I will go in great depth, as I possibly humanly can, into how prophecy works, because it's, it operates on many different levels. But Isaiah 7 is going to be my springboard conversation for how prophecy works. So, right now, we're just building transparencies. Okay? So, out of Bethlehem will rise. So, Yahweh will hand the people over Israel to the enemies until the time comes. Now, until that happens, the woman is labor. Now, the woman is Israel. The woman is Israel. Then the rest of the king of the countrymen will return. They'll be returned to the people of Israel. He will assume his posts and shepherd the people by Yahweh's strength. By the sovereign authority of Yahweh his God, they will live securely, for at that time he will be honored, even in the distant regions of the earth. He will give us peace. Should the Assyrians try to invade our land and attempt to set foot on our fortresses, we will send against them seven shepherd rulers. Make that eight commanders. Okay, now seven is the number of completion, and eight is the number of new beginnings. So we are going to completely destroy them, and it will create a new beginning. Will Assyria ever attack us again? No. That's Micah's way of saying the exile will never happen again. The exile will never happen again. They will rule the land of Assyria with a sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn sword. Our king will rescue us from the Assyrians. Should they attempt to invade our land or try to set foot in our territory, those survivors from Jacob will live. In the midst of many nations, they will be like the dew that Yahweh sends, like the rains of the grass that does not hope for men to come or wait around for humans to arrive. Those survivors from Jacob will live among the nations in the midst of many peoples, and they will be like a lion among the animals of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which attacks, but when it passes through, it rips its prey, and there is no one to stop it. Lift your hand triumphantly against your adversaries. May all your enemies be destroyed. What Micah is promising is, though you will be whipped by the nations now, one day the tables will be turned. But, as the prophets will later develop, they will not be turned in your vengeance. They will be turned in the redemption that God has for the world. In that day, says Yahweh, I will destroy your horses from your midst and smash your chariots. And that day you will no longer trust and hope in horses and chariots and military power because your king will be with you and your king will actually be righteous and you won't doubt him and he won't mislead you. I will remove sorcery that you practice and you will no longer have omen readers living among you I will remove your idols and sacred pillars from your midst. You will no longer worship what your own hands have made. I will uproot your images of the Asherah from your midst and destroy your idols. And I will angrily seek vengeance on the nations that do not obey me. So obviously this did not happen when they returned. And obviously this did not happen when Christ returned. And this still hasn't happened even in the church. 
Because we have lots of Christians who do stuff like this, consult omens and sorcery, and we have idols in our lives. This is still a distant future thing for us. And by distant, I mean relatively. I know it can happen tomorrow. But distant for us. This is an ultimate end goal that Yahweh is painting here. Listen to what Yahweh says. Get up, defend yourselves before the mountains. Present your case before the hills. Hear Yahweh's accusation, you mountains, you enduring foundations of the earth. For Yahweh has a case against his people. He has a dispute with Israel. So he's bringing a dispute. Okay, now listen. The mountains and creation are his witness. Because they're the only thing that's been around since the beginning of time. They're the only thing that has witnessed and seen everything that Israel has done. And they're the only thing that has not rebelled and gone astray from Yahweh. And so they are witnesses to all the evil that Israel has. You know, when you're walking through the forest and you see these big, powerful trees, and you're like, oh, imagine all the things that this tree has seen. Now, we don't mean that literally, but we just like, we know that there's a lifetime that's way longer with this tree and what it's witnessed than what we have witnessed. And that's what God is saying. My people, how I have wronged you. How I have wearied you. Answer me. In fact, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I delivered you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam to lead you. My people recall how King Balak of Moab planned to harm you. How Balaam, son of Baor, responded to him. Recall how you journeyed from the Shittim to Gilgal so that might acknowledge that Yahweh has treated you fairly. With what should I enter Yahweh's presence? With what should I bow before the sovereign God? Should I enter his presence with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will Yahweh accept a thousand rams or ten thousand streams of olive oil? Should I give my firstborn child as payment for my rebellion, my offspring, my own flesh and blood for my sin? He has told you, O man, what is good and what Yahweh really wants from you. He wants you to promote justice to be faithful, and to live obediently before God. Verse 8 is a very famous verse that we quote a lot. But what Yahweh is saying here is he's asking a question. What are the best sacrifices? What are the best offerings to God? Is it millions of dollars to a charity? Is it tons and tons of hours serving in the, the, the nursery or homeless shelter? Is it filling up thousands of baby jars for Pregnancy Decision Center? Those are all good things. Is it thousands of sacrifices? Is it lots of olive oil? These are all things God has required. They're all good. No, none of that really matters. Because those should be symptoms of something deeper. They are the byproduct, the fruit of something something way deeper. Because he has told you that he wants mercy and loyalty. Mercy refers more broadly to loyalty and faithfulness and devotion. The emphasis is seen in love mercy for devotion to others is proof. What he means by mercy here is social justice. What is your greatest act of worship? It's actually fighting the injustices in the world. It's not just the money that you're giving to these charities. It's not just the the, the hours that you're working. It's that you're doing this to literally right the wrongs in people's lives. Are you thinking like, oh, I'll do this and 
this is my act of worship. Or, oh, they need really lots of money. Or, oh, like I've worked really hard for God and I've shown him that I loved him. Or, oh, I feel really good when I serve Yahweh. Those are all valid things. Or is it the core of your heart? These people are being wronged. And these people are being violated. And this is what I have, my tool to stop this from happening. And it's either money to fund programs to stop abortions. But it's not about funding a good ministry. It's about stopping abortions. This isn't just about stopping the sex slave trade industry because it's wrong. This is because I actually want to. And sometimes, unfortunately, sending money is great and awesome and it's better than nothing. And sometimes all we can do is send money. But sometimes we also need to roll our sleeves up and get face-to-face with those people too. And that's what God is talking about. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some things that the only thing I can do is send money because I don't have the hours in my life to be involved in everybody's lives. I don't have the gifts to be involved in that kind of a thing. But there needs to be somewhere in your life where you're facing off with these people and being in a relationship with them. Does that make sense? And what this is what he's saying is at the core. Obedience. Obedience. Pursuing God in a relational love and seeking to promote justice in people's lives. This is your act of worship. Now that fits, because at the very beginning of the garden, God said, work until the garden. Expand the garden. Make the whole world look like the kingdom of God. And those words, work until, are the root words for worship all throughout the Bible. And now God tells you, how do you want to worship God? What is the best way to worship God? Worship Yahweh. And you worship Yahweh by loving others. It's not your sacrifices. It's not your money in the offering plate. It's not the programs you've started. It's that you're truly trying to expand the garden. You're trying to stop evil in the world. Yahweh calls them to stand out and to pursue this. Then Yahweh then goes and says, you're not doing this, Israel. This is not what I see when I look at you. And Yahweh then compared himself in chapter 7 to one like a vineyard, like a, a master of a vineyard who goes out into the orchards and the vineyards to gather fruit, yet the trees are barren. What is fruit? Fruit is to promote justice and to be faithful and to be obedient before Yahweh. So now, Israel, I go out into your orchards and I go into your vineyards and I go to collect the fruit, but I don't see any fruit. It's all dead. It's all gone. So then chapter 7, verse 8. My enemies do not gloat over me. Though I have fallen, I will get up. Though I sit in darkness, Yahweh will be my light. I must endure Yahweh's Yahweh's anger, for I have sinned against him. But then he will defend my cause, and he will accomplish justice on my behalf. He will lead me out into the light. I will experience firsthand his deliverance. So Micah now begins to talk like an Israelite who is currently in exile. He's looking into the future, and the Assyrians have already come. They've taken Israel into exile. And this person is sitting in exile, and he says, My enemies do not gloat over me. I have fallen, but God has promised me I will get back up again. I sit in the darkness, but Yahweh is my light and hope. I must endure his punishment. I must endure being in time out. Because I know that ultimately he loves me, 
and he will bring me out of time out for my own good. He will defend my cause. He will accomplish justice on my behalf, even though I did not accomplish justice on other people's behalf. He will lead me into the light, and I will experience firsthand his deliverance. When my enemies see this, they will be covered with shame. They will say to me, Where is Yahweh your God? And I will glow over them. And then they will be trampled down like the mud in the streets. It will be the day for rebuilding your walls. And in that day, your boundary will be extended. Now, notice this double theme that seems like it's a paradox and a contradiction. God talks about one day he will restore Mount Zion and all the nations will come and worship him there. But then the other moment he's talking about the day that Israel will destroy and stomp on and kill all the nations. You're like, how can both be true? Because lots of people from the nations will repent and come to God and lots of people in the nations will not. And this is why when we get to Isaiah, Isaiah will refer to the nations who see the Messiah bring in the utopian plan of God's Garden of Eden, and they will say, I don't want to be a part of that. And he will call them the ruined city, who will be judged and condemned. And then he will look at all the people from all the nations who are looking at this, and they see this amazing God who delivers his people again, like Egypt. And they say, I want to be a part of that God. And he will call them the new Jerusalem. And when we get to Isaiah, it will be the ruined city and the new Jerusalem. And this is the image that he's painting here on this final day. Verse 12, And that day people will come to you from Assyria as far as Egypt, and from Egypt as far as the Euphrates River, and the sea coasts and the mountains, and the earth will become desolate because of what its inhabitants have done. Shepherd your people with your shepherd's rod, the flock that belongs to you, the one that lives alone in a thicket, in the midst of the pasture land. Allow them to graze in Bashan and in Gilead. These are rich um, grasses on the eastern side of the Jordan River, as they did in the old days, as in the days when you departed from the land of Egypt. I will show you miraculous deeds. Nations will see this and be disappointed by all their strength. They will put their hands over their mouths and act as if they were deaf. Meaning many nations will see this, but they will not recognize God's miraculous acts, even though he will perform many miraculous acts. They will lick the dust like a snake, like a serpent crawling on the ground, and they will come trembling from their strongholds to Yahweh our God, and they will be terrified of you. There will be many people that will be cast to the ground because they disobey God and led other people into temptation like the serpent in the garden. And their judgment is they will eat the dirt like the serpent. There is no other God like you. You forgive sin and pardon the rebellion. Of those who remain among your people, you do not remain angry forever, but you delight in showing loyal love. Now remember, I've told you many, 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 many times that Yahweh is unique from any other God, human being in the entire world. And one of the ways that he's absolutely unique is he is the only being in the entire universe is absolutely, totally sovereign and loving at the same time. He is all-powerful and in control of everything, and yet he's all-loving at the same time. There's no other being that's absolutely all-powerful except for Allah. And I don't mean Allah is real. I mean like in the way that we think. Yet he doesn't love you. And he tells you that all the time in the Quran. 
And there is no other being that loves you so unconditionally that you would put up with people like this over and over and over again and still make promises to restore you and then ultimately let those people kill you on the cross and still forgive them and do it for them and pursue them. And that's why he says, there is no other God like you. The other way that Yahweh is absolutely unique is there is no other being who pursues you no matter what. No matter how much you wrong him. We all have our limit of what we will put up with when unrepentant people wrong us over and over and over again. Yahweh has no limit. He has a limit before he judges you, but he does not have a limit to abandoning you and giving up on you. His patience does run out, and he will punish you, but his patience never runs out on restoring you and redeeming you. And notice he says, for you... Show us loyal love. Chesed. This is the Hebrew word chesed. And chesed is that concept of love, even though you've done nothing to earn it, and love, even though you will never do anything in return. It's where we get the idea of unconditional love. And though unconditional love is a very common concept today in America, and lots of non-Christians talk about it, it's because of the Bible. It's because we are largely built on Judeo-Christian foundations as a nation. But in the ancient world, you can read all the documents and all the religions. And you can read the Triptycha from Buddha. And you can read all these things. And you don't find anywhere this concept of a love for a people that don't deserve it, will never give you anything in return. And even when they wrong you over and over again, you still love them. Ahava is the Hebrew word for an emotional love. I emotionally love you, and I will emotionally pour into you. And that's a good love. And that's the love that God says, Ahava me with all your heart, and with all your life, and all your muchness. So there's nothing wrong with that love. It's not an inferior love. It's a covenantal love. But chesed is a love that I have even when there's nothing emotionally there. This is where DC talk comes in and says love is a verb. Okay? And it's the idea that even when I don't feel all warm and fuzzy and the cockles of my heart aren't being warmed by you, and right now you're very unlovable, I've made a covenant. And I will serve you and redeem you. And I will allow God to work through me. And that's why Micah is ending with, there is no other God like that. Yeah, you can find those ideas and some religions and stories and movies today, but only because Jesus is the greatest man that has ever lived and changed the way that people thought about a lot of things in world history. But until him, all you have is the Jewish writings of Yahweh. And as we've seen, they weren't very world-influential like Jesus has been. Verse 19, You will once again have mercy on us, You will conquer our evil deeds. You will hurl our sins in the depths of the sea. Now you're beginning to see that language. This is the new layer of the transparency. The new language of sin being completely dealt with. We had a hint of it that if there's no more wars and no more arguing and everybody's getting rid of their weapons, that implies evil and sin has been dealt away with. But now he literally is saying, you will conquer all evil in our hearts our deeds. 
And you will take our sin and throw it into the depths of the sea, the abyss. Or the revelation term for this is the lake of fire. You will be loyal to Jacob and extend your loyal love to Abraham, which you promised on oath to our ancestors and ancient times. Do not miss the heart of God. Yes, his judgments are harsh, but do not forget they are totally warranted. Yes, his judgments are harsh, but do not forget we would do way more to other people for far less. Yes, his judgments are harsh, but do not forget they are temporary. Yes, his judgments are harsh, but ultimately do not forget that they serve a greater plan of redemption that he's already thought through. This is not a God who walks in his kids and is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you've ever done this before. I never imagined my kids would ever do this. And you're burning with anger and rage and you get mad and you yell and scream and you punish them and then you go down and you sit for a while and you calm down and you're like, oh wow, I kind of overreacted on that one. I better like make that right. Or... At worst, I'll just ignore it and act like it never happened and just be really friendly with them. And I just keep moving on with life. This is a God who is not surprised by their sin. He knew it was coming. This is a God who is not cut off guard for it. He does not fly off the handle and loses his temper. He does not lose control. He regulates his judgment for a purpose. And his purpose is not an afterthought of, I love my kids and I need to restore them but his purpose is to refine them and purify them so that he can perform another act of deliverance from Egypt, to wow the nations again, that in their punishment they would look at their sins as what we're going to see later in Isaiah, and they would be horrified by what they did, and that they would ultimately be brought back so that he could begin to build them into what he's always wanted to be, the kingdom of God that has no sin, who has the real God, biblical utopia in mind. And this is his big plan. And this is what people miss. They just cherry pick and ride their horses through the Bible and find the chairs they want. And they read these verses of God reading judgment. And they're like, see, you're God. Yet every single one of them will go home and discipline their kids. Now, maybe not every single one of them. But God has greater and bigger and deeper and more intentional thoughts about what he's trying to do with discipline than we ever do. And I will tell you right now, there is no verse in the Bible that is specifically laid out how to discipline kids. And I'm not saying that I have arrived or mastered it, and I screw up a lot. But I have learned more about how to discipline my children by just seeing the character of God in the prophets. Now, I'm not bringing the Assyrians down on them. So don't like call it. <laughs> but the idea of intentionally trying to discipline them by sending them into timeout with the intention of what I'm going to do when they come out of timeout, the conversations I'm going to have with them, the hugs, the intentional comments of I forgive you, the intentional comments that we all need Jesus. When I mess up, I try to confess this is why we need Jesus. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. I've learned more about how to do that from the prophets, not from a verse that says do this and do this. And it's still very difficult to figure out a lot of times because life is complicated and no situation is just clear cut. But I've been given more guidance on disciplining as a parent, looking at the character of God throughout many prophets 
than any Bible verse quippy little memorization could have ever given me. And I hope you begin to see that, that there is a time for time out if that time out is intentional with a purpose of restoration, redemption, and a conversation forgiveness and to make them something way more than they could ever imagine. This is the character of God. And this is our loving Father.